It's good to be with you again this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to make your way to Galatians chapter 2. Interestingly enough, we'll be looking at Galatians 5, but uh, before we get to 5, we're going to review a little bit of what we looked at last week. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2, just briefly, and then we'll make our way over to Galatians chapter 5. The letter of Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches that he had visited uh, previously, that he had planted. He had been traveling through what the Bible would call Asia Minor, what we would call today the land of Turkey, and it was all part of the Roman Empire. These were Gentile cities, and uh, he had been sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel there on most likely, if we understand all the way the pieces fit together on his first missionary journey. And so in sharing the gospel, uh, Paul had tried to uh, help people to understand, first of all, their need for a savior with their sins, and ultimately that Christ would be sufficient to forgive their sins. And so what he had formed, or what the Spirit had done through his work uh, over the course of that journey, was the start of these new churches in these primarily pagan towns. And so uh, we talked last week, if you were with us, about some of the background about Paul. If you remember Paul's story, he used to go by the name Saul. He was uh, well-trained as a Pharisee and kind of, if you think about a lawyer, that's kind of the right way to think about a a legal expert in the law, uh, in in God's word. They would understand in the uh, first century, uh, before the New Testament is being written or as it's being written, what they have is from Genesis to Malachi what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, Jews would refer to that as the Hebrew Scriptures. And so this was Paul or Saul's area of expertise, if you remember, we were talking about that. And when Christ came, uh, Christ came to fulfill the law, but some of the lawyers didn't see Christ as the fulfillment, Saul being one of them. And so Saul begins to take these misguided people so he thought, uh, that were following Christ and wanted to correct them, to discipline them, to, to, to get them away from the pure Judaism because he knew as a legal expert that the Old Testament did not point to Christ as Messiah. That was his understanding, and so he was very zealous for this uh, idea of stopping believers from believing. And if you remember the story, he was on his way to Damascus, uh, where he uh, heard of some believers there that he wanted to um, persecute, uh, deal with, confront, uh, conform if he could. And so on his way, he encounters the resurrected Christ, and it's a blinding experience. Literally, he's blinded. He makes his way with the people who are with him to Damascus, ultimately, God raises up Ananias to come see him, and uh, uh, he comes to faith in the very uh, Lord and Savior whom he had understood to not be the fulfillment of the law. And, and so uh, eventually Saul will go by the name Paul, and we'll, we'll just call him Paul for, for clarity. And, and so Paul is spending now his career uh, pouring out his faith as, as a missionary, as an evangelist, as an apostle uh, amongst the Jews and Gentiles, but, but really into Gentile territory. And, and you'll remember that, that he had, a, had to go through sort of a radical transformation. Everything he knew, everything he thought, uh, everything that he understood to be true, being that the Bible showed that, or or the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures showed that Jesus was not the Messiah, was in fact wrong. 
that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus did fulfill Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus was the promised one, that he was the prophet that was referred to back in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy when Moses was saying that there would be a one greater than him who would come. And, and so Paul has gone through this sort of radical, everything he thought was wrong, and it took him a while to kind of rebuild his whole law degree to understand that the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures point directly to Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment, that Christ is the Messiah. And he had such joy and such, if I could call it, tenacity to present the gospel to these places. And so he's on this missionary journey, he's sharing the gospel, because first of all, his life had been transformed, his mind had been changed. He thought he was the expert, and as it turned out, he had been wrong once he confronted the Pharisees. So, when we get to the book of Galatians, just as sort of by way of background as we get back into the text, excuse me, we get to the book of Galatians, and it's a little bit, I mentioned this last uh, time together, it's a little bit like hearing one side of the phone call. We've got to kind of fill in what happened because Paul is writing this letter to respond to what had happened. And so it seems in light of Paul's response in the book of Galatians that after they had gone, him and his companions, as they had been planting churches and sharing the gospel and traveling to these cities, uh, that after them, they had returned home to Antioch, Antioch in Syria, so that would be north of Israel a little ways. That was sort of home base for them. When they had returned home, others um, had come and they had said something along the lines of, you know, we really like Paul. Uh, Paul's a good guy and we're so grateful that he shared to you sort of the introductory version of the gospel, but he didn't tell you everything. It, it seems that's what they were saying. These were Jews who said in order to be saved or maybe in order to stay saved, you, you, there's certain things you must do. You, you must be circumcised. Uh, you must be celebrating the Jewish festivals and keeping the Jewish Sabbath. You, you, you must keep the Jewish dietary laws. In other words, it's great that Christ, that Paul presented Christ, and sort of Christ is a key component to your salvation, but there's your part as well. In other words, there's work you must do to either get saved or to be saved or to stay saved, something like that. And so they are undermining Paul's authority, and it seems that they've said, you know, something along the lines of, Paul didn't actually give you the gospel that he received from Christ. He got it, you know, the apostles, the real apostles, uh, Matthew and and Peter and Andrew and James, uh, those guys, those are the ones who walked with Jesus. They're real apostles. Paul probably got the gospel, you know, from Matthew. And you know how it is. You you, you go and you take a course and and, and you learn and and, and you you get a B minus. So that means you learned a lot in the course, but you didn't learn everything, right? And you got to be minus. And so it seems that that's the kind of thing that they were saying about Paul, that, that he got the first part, you know, it's about Jesus and you got to receive Jesus and he is your savior and all of that's true, but he forgot to tell you the rest of it about the details of Judaism. And so the idea is you really need to be a Jew, you Gentiles, to be saved. Your salvation isn't complete. 
We talked about this uh, last time together that you can imagine if you're born and raised in, in, a, in a pagan home where you know nothing of the gospel, you don't know grace, you haven't seen Christ's love, and someone comes and presents to you the truth of Jesus Christ, that he loves you, that he bore your sin on the cross, he paid for it, and that you can be made righteous through him. Well, when someone brings that and you come to faith in Christ and, and the spirit enters and begins to mold you and make you into a person who used to be corruptible and, and, and now to a person who is becoming incorruptible, your, your life is changing. And, and so these people are young believers in pagan towns who are seeing their lives begin to change and their hearts grow warm and, and probably we're seeing marriages renewed and, and, and families becoming whole and, and, and so on. And then someone comes and challenges the very gospel that was transforming your life. And you can imagine as young believers, you're wondering, the last thing you want to do is get salvation wrong. And so there would be a temptation amongst the believers, at least if I put myself in the situation, I would be tempted to go, well, better safe than sorry, let's become a Jew right away as well. Like it kind of makes sense. If you're unsure, then that, well, maybe we should become Jews. And, and after all, the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures that were readily available as the New Testament documents are being written, um, they're all about the Jews. So, so maybe I do have to become a Jew. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. And, and so you can imagine and you can kind of feel the anger of the Apostle Paul because this was his problem. He understood that Jesus, you could never accept Jesus as Lord and Savior without being a Jew. I mean, Paul or Saul back in the old days was this zealous Jew and a promoter of Judaism. And so this was Paul's same problem. Now he's seeing his, if we could call this, uh, spiritual children. The, the churches that he planted, the dear young believers he'd come to love, um, that now they're going through the same thing that he did, which is they're now, he had come from legalism to embrace Christ, and now they had embraced Christ and were, be challenged, were going to be challenged to go into legalism, to earn some part of their salvation, or to, to be able to do certain things to keep some part of their salvation. And so when Paul writes the, the, uh, the book of Galatians, you get some of the, again, I'll use the word tenacity of Paul. He, he is probably this combination of very upset that someone undermines what he was teaching, and he's very angry at the Judaizers, which are these group of people or individuals who have come to sort of undermine Paul's, uh, uh, Paul's gospel that he had presented, and, and then he's very hurt because he loves these people dearly, and he's saddened that, that some of them will probably go down to the life that he had just been delivered from, right? This life of legalism and earning your way to God and thinking that somehow you could be good enough to, to please God, and so so all of that emotion is sort of bound up in this letter. And so Paul Idile would love to uh, quickly get to these Galatian churches and visit them and, and, and bring them, deal with these problems face to face. But at that point, that wasn't uh, practical or realistic. And so he writes the letter. And so we're reading this letter uh, a long time. Our context, our situation is very different. And yet our, our, our situation is very similar. It's just kind of interesting as I think about the book of Galatians and the role that's played in sort of the history of the church. The, the, the primary issues mentioned in the book of Galatians are things like circumcision and things like the Jewish festivals, celebrating those and so on. And, and those specific things have primarily 
not been issues in the church age. We don't have a lot of churches struggling, excuse me, with those specific issues. And so the specific issues mentioned in Galatians that were these legalistic ideas that were being presented that you had to do these things to be saved. In other words, you are part of your own salvation. There's partly things that you must do and you must be. Uh, that, That idea of legalism has always plagued the church. We've always had challenges in the church and through our history here and in other places around the world of some legalistic ideas of what we must do to be saved. And, and that has continued to struggle. That, that has, the church has struggled with that. And Galatians has continued to be relevant to the church in showing the role that we play in our salvation and then what happens next. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning is what happens next. So I want to review last week just briefly um, with the text in in Galatians 2 and then on to Galatians 5 here. So again, from Galatians 2, um, I just want to uh, go back to verse... Uh, 19. We won't go through all the details, but Galatians 2 verse 19 just kind of catch some key thoughts here from the Apostle Paul, and then we'll make our way to Galatians 5. Uh, So Galatians 2.19, for though I, uh, I'm sorry, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, Paul, if you remember, or if you were here last week, uh, and we talked about some of this, that, that Paul is identifying that his salvation is never through keeping the law. And so he's being very, very careful here, for through the law I died. I was not able to be a law keeper. I died to that so that now I'm able to live for God. And then he gives this imagery of himself with Christ. And we picture Christ on the cross and his crucifixion. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm not alive anymore. I'm a lawbreaker, but now Christ lives in me the idea of that I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. So that's the basic idea. That's the big correction that Galatians is being written, that we're not supposed to sort of keep the law to keep ourselves saved. That makes no sense. If the law didn't save us, then the law can't keep us saved. And so Paul goes through many arguments, and really chapter 3 is sort of illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration showing how the law doesn't save us. However... That seems to open a very dangerous door, which now means if I don't have to earn my favor with God, if I don't have to do certain things to be saved or to say saved or or, or something like that, if it doesn't involve me doing something and trying to please God with my own stuff, whatever that stuff might be, maybe I could do whatever I want. This is great. Christ died for me, I'm good to go, right? And so people are imagining in their minds that, wow, this means anything goes. After all, it's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. And of course, that's true, but that doesn't quite sound right, does it? I mean, this has always been, you talk about if you preach too much grace, you're going to lead to license that people will think, wow, there's so much grace, I can do what I want. 
And so Paul moves from the correction, which we kind of talked about focusing at the end of chapter two last Sunday together, to now how do we live going forward? Obviously, we're just picking a couple of highlights here in these two weeks in Galatians, but hopefully these highlights we can kind of fit together. I encourage you to read the whole book. Um, In light of our time, we'll make our way to Galatians chapter 5. And and so that's what we now have to figure out. I, I hope that makes sense, that it seems that if Christ has been so gracious to take care of all our sin, and that's on an ongoing basis, I mean, why not live however you want? Let's just sin. I mean, the door is open. Do, do as you wish. So we pick up the thinking now uh, further along in chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. So just kind of keep, as we're going to read this, just kind of keep in the background all this context. Paul planted these churches. These churches love Paul. Paul loves these people. However, someone, some group of folks, we're calling them the Judaizers, or they're called the Judaizers in the book of Galatians, uh, they came along and said, Paul wasn't this, this tier one disciple, he's kind of, or, or apostle, he was kind of like a, a, a junior varsity. You know, he's an up-and-comer, he's got the first part of the gospel down, and now he's just got to learn the rest and so on. And so they were undermining his authority, and so Paul reestablishes his authority in order to make the correction, and now the question is, well, how do we live? Okay, so that's what's on the table right now. How do we live? And what I'm suggesting, even as we get into the text, is this might help us in how we live. Okay, it's not merely ancient, back to first century, how they should live, but maybe this will help us as well. I believe that's the idea, as the Spirit has inspired Paul's words here. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5 in to uh, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Uh Uh-oh. This sounds like that slippery slope, like I can do whatever I want. We've been called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Excuse me. Let's just start with that. Let's just start with that particular section. We'll keep going here, but let's just kind of follow what's going on. Again, we're kind of picking up the letter here. We should start further back in five, but in light of time, I just want to focus on this particular section. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And so we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to be free? Because the world has a definition, and it's very simple. Freedom is you can do whatever you want. And yet it's interesting, if you start to think about that definition of freedom, nobody can do whatever they want. Nobody can. That, that, that's not, not only is that impractical, and we might use the illustration like you can't yell fire in the middle of a crowded room where there's no fire, right? Because then all of a sudden all sorts of mechanisms go into motion, fire alarms go off, fire trucks come, and there is no fire, and, and you've, you, you've scared people, you, you put people possibly in danger, you've wasted resources, so on and so forth. And so we have laws against just sort of saying and doing whatever you want in, in one sense. And, and we can say that, but we're also very limited by our ability. Okay, so for example, if I say you're free to do whatever you want, I don't care how fast you would run off the end of this stage, you can't fly. You can't. 
you might want to fly. Wouldn't it be nice to fly? Look at the birds and the eagles flying the blue sky, and you can imagine flying, but you can't do it. You're not free to fly. And so freedom never is this sort of open-ended, hey, do whatever you want. You can't jump high enough to reach the moon. You might be able to jump six inches, 12 inches, 24, 36, or even like Michael Jordan, you can jump 48 inches. 48 inches doesn't get you any closer to the moon than not jumping at all. You can't jump that high. We are not able to. So when we talk about freedom, we must talk within the ability of what we are able to do. Does that make sense? We can't mean with freedom that we can do anything because you can always imagine things you can't do. We can't fly, we can't jump infinitely high, and so on and so forth. There's an, an, an unbelievable amount of things we could come up with that we can't do. Now, back to Paul's argument. You, brothers and sisters, were called to be free. So Paul's not suggesting do anything you want. Paul's not suggesting that, that you're now able to do things that you were not able to do before, superhuman things like fly or something like that. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. The, the flesh is really being used here by Paul as, as that sinful nature, those sinful tendencies that, you all, that, that, that we all have and that we've all had uh, from birth, that we've inherited from our parents who inherited it from their parents and who inherited from their parents and so on and so forth. And so this idea of indulging the flesh is... Well, it's doing what we sort of naturally do, naturally because we have this sinful tendency, this sinful bent, this sinful nature. So you have been called to be free, and then let's jump down to the end of 13, serve, uh, uh, serve one another humbly in love. So we're free, but Paul wants to sort of set up what we're free to do and what we're not free to do and what that means. And so when we use sort of a generic definition of freedom as anything you want, we immediately can realize that's not possible. Nobody is free to do anything they want. And then Paul goes to give a little bit of explanation here, and I'm going to start to draw on some other passages and talk about why uh, the freedom isn't to do anything we want. Uh, verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're going to have to figure out the issue of the law, which law sounds like we're not going to be free. I mean, if we got to follow the law, that sounds heavy and weighty and a whole bunch of can I? No. Well, how about could I? No. Right? That's what we kind of think that way when it comes to the law. Paul's going to talk about the law being a reference to love, and so we'll have to figure that out. I, I want us to think a little bit about this phrase, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Uh, a words of Jesus uh, recorded back in John chapter 8, 34. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul, when he's writing to his compatriot Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he'll say it this way. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being uh, hated and hating one another. And so many times, I'm just using these two 
passages as illustrations that talking about being free to do whatever we want, look, look at Paul's language here, uh, we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, that's Titus 3.3, 3. we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, but that's kind of what the world puts forward, if you could be free, you can do whatever you want. Let, let, let's take, as, just as an illustration, let's take drink alcohol. Bible talks about drinking alcohol. It talks about doing that in moderation. At times, Paul will recommend it to Timothy a little bit for your stomach and so on. Uh, and so uh, it, 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 it has its place, but one has to be careful, right? And so you can say, oh, that's what I love so much. And if you indulge, what happens? Well, first of all, it happens that you have too much and you begin to lose control and, and, and drunkenness and then you, you, when you wake up, then all of a sudden all the after effects of drunkenness and it's not as wonderful as it once was. But if you do that habitually, all of a sudden you can't function without the alcohol and it becomes enslaved. The very things we could be passionate about can become enslaving. As a matter of fact, That's how sin works. Sin is always going to enslave us in the very thing that we thought we could get away with or the thing that we could do even though I know you shouldn't do, but I can do it or, or, you know, we justify these things that we want to do. And so Paul is helping the believers figure out that just because Christ's grace is sufficient for all our sin, that you don't want to then find yourself living a life of sin because that's enslaving and it never allows you to enjoy the freedom that Christ is giving you. Okay? So sin in the Bible is always presented as this thing that we become slaves to. And I think we can identify with that. If you think of sins that you struggle with, I think of sins that, that I struggle with. And, and the fact is, especially ones that are sort of recurring, we continue to struggle with them. They continue to to enslave us. Maybe it's an angry temper or something. It it enslaves us. We don't want to be angry with our spouse or we don't want to be angry with folks at work or or family members or whoever it might be and and yet it, it enslaves us. And so this is part of what Christ is doing is breaking this relationship with sin. That's part of what's going on here. So Paul says again, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh because indulging in the flesh is enslaving. Your passions and desires can enslave you. So how do we not indulge in the flesh? Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And so you really have the idea of two possibilities in serving. Serve yourself. Do whatever you want to do. As it turns out, that's going to enslave you. That's going to bring you into bondage. Or serve others. That's not going to, bond, that's not going to enslave you. Serve yourself. That's ultimately going to tie you up. Or serve others humbly in love. And this is the picture that, that uh, Paul is going to paint. And we'll continue to build it out as we move forward. Four, verse 14, four, the entire law, 
Okay, think law, Old Testament law. Think Ten Commandments. They're probably the easiest things to, to sort of bring to mind. And so you can think of do not covet or do not murder. You can think of things like honor your father, father and mother. You can think of uh, uh, commandments like you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, just kind of think of those things. For the entire law, don't murder, don't covet on your father and mother, is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm confused now. I thought Paul said that we were delivered from the law. I thought we didn't have to worry about the law. Christ worried about the law so I can do what I want. But this isn't the idea of we've now abandoned the law. Look what we've done with the law. We've fulfilled it. The entire law is fulfilled, kept. Kind of sounds a little bit like Jesus' words, right? Jesus says, I didn't come here to break the law. I came here to fulfill the law. I didn't come here to condemn the law. I came here to keep the law, fulfill the law. And so now he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you think back to the Old Testament, you have 10 commandments. And then if you don't have enough to do and sit down and actually count the case laws, there's 613 case laws mentioned in the Old Testament. And then there's dietary laws. There's laws about the Sabbath. uh, uh, Laws surrounding the, the, uh, uh, the practice of circumcision and so on and so forth. So you have this whole collection of laws, laws of holiness through the book of, uh, of Leviticus. And so you have all these laws there. And so we get to the New Testament and these legal experts all have their understanding of how the laws fit together and which way they're placed and so on. And so they want to confront and, tri- and trip up Jesus. And so the Pharisees ask Jesus, you know, what's the most important law? And he summarizes the law. He says, well, the most important is to love the Lord your God Uh, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then he says, and the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, all those Old Testament laws were just simply trying to explain to us how to love. But it's not how people thought about them. They thought that somehow we could be law keepers in such a way that that would earn enough goodness that we could be with God. And so the law is always pointing us on how to love, which is why we are set free by the law. The law is fulfilled. Now, we mess up. By God's grace, we can be forgiven. But we don't want to, with God's grace, be enslaving ourselves, because if we follow our own passions and our own desires, it always becomes enslaving. And so Paul is, if you will, setting these churches free by not making them become Jews. He's setting these dear folks free that he loves and that he he was there to share the gospel with them and plant these churches. And now he's setting them free and he's setting them free to love one another. Watch what happens when you don't love. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And so the love of God is always expressed in our relationships with each other. And so John will write later on in 1 John that, that our, the very knowledge of us being followers of Christ is seen in how we love one another. That command to love one another, that is how one loves God, is by loving each other. And so love is going to take on this central portion, but notice that loving is actually fulfilling the law. So we're not saved by fulfilling the law. We're saved by the grace of Christ, by his sacrifice, by him taking on our sinfulness and reclothing us with his righteousness. But we are called to live in this cloak of righteousness uh, 
by loving. And by doing that, it doesn't save us, but interestingly enough, it fulfills the law. However, if you don't, you immediately have destruction. And then we get to sort of Paul's main main point here or or the the central theme of, of the rest of this passage. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, the desires of the flesh, that's your your sinful tendencies, your sinful nature. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not... Excuse, you, excuse me, you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so Paul is now describing how we go about this because as it turns out, loving people can be very challenging. Not all people, right? You all know people who are easy to love and then you all know people who fall into the, the other category, right? The opposite of whatever easy to love would be. And, and, and so not all loving is easy. And so now we start to see a little bit of a better picture of the Christian life. And as Paul is painting it for these Galatian believers, we can see how it's directly ap- uh, applicable to our own lives. Verse 16, so I say walk by the Spirit. And I want to take just a moment to think about that word walk, or later on he'll talk about being led by the Spirit. It's the idea of this ongoingness in our lives. It's easy to be very, very spiritual for three minutes, right? You, you could literally be really, really spiritual for, for, for maybe six. But, but, but the, that's not what's being called here. What's called here is, is our daily walk, the ongoing path. The idea here, if you think about it, is the, the path you take in life is led by the Spirit. You are to walk by the Spirit. So we're talking about movement. And movement is something that's very important that we understand with the Christian life. That, that is very much at the heart of the gospel message. And sometimes we don't think about the, how the New Testament calls us to continue to, to grow will be one of the... How continue to use Paul's language to fight the good fight. It, it's that ongoing. Here it's called to, to walk by the Spirit. Uh, think of James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith, the trials that you've gone to, gone through, uh, that the testing of your faith must be perfected so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, the idea is we are called to grow, develop, mature, move from milk to meat, as the writer of Hebrews will talk about. We, we, we are char- uh, uh, called to let our roots grow down deep in God's word. And so the Christian life is the ongoing life, the developing life. And what we'd love to see is a graph that looks like this. Here's us growing and developing, and it's like that. But no one's life is like that. It's like this, isn't it? It's ups and downs and so on. But the push, the thrust is always the ongoingness, the day by day. The, some of us, we face trials and they're short-lived. They're very difficult and, and then we get through them and they're over. And other times we bear burdens that go on and on 
and on. And we have prayer requests that are the same as they were a year ago. And should the Lord tarry, will be the same a year from now and until the Lord fulfills and, 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 and deals in these situations as he sees fit. And so Paul is trying to equip them not for a momentary battle, but for the ongoing. And so he says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so notice it's going to be kind of the black and white, the, the yes and no, the opposites. And he's going to show us here the desires of the flesh and the life of the spirit. And so he does it this way, 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. Notice that they're not ah pretty similar. The spirit's a little more holy, but they're, they're pretty close. No, they're contrary. So our natural, sinful, fleshly desires are contrary to the spirit. In other words, our natural, sinful tendencies are always inward, about me. And, and, and notice what we're called to do. We're called to, uh, back to verse 13, rather serve one another in hu- humbly in love. Our, our, the spirit will lead us to act externally for others, loving others, caring for others. So I say the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are uh, in conflict with each other so that you are not to do, excuse me, whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And so he is literally trying to set them free from thinking they can do whatever they want. Because if you do whatever you want, it ends up to entangle you and enslave you and bind you. And so Paul wants to keep them free, which is why he began this whole section with, you were called to be free. Don't bind yourself up in sin. Well, how would I do that? By doing whatever you want. That always becomes sinful because whatever you want is always turning in. And, and so we have this picture of what these churches are called to be, and obviously what we are called to be, which is these turned out people. What do I mean by that? I mean, we're turned out to care and love for others. That, that, that's, that's what we were called to do. And he goes on to describe this uh, 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Now, before I read this list, you need to know that list writing in morals is very popular in the first century. Even outside of biblical literature, you can find various moral codes, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, various moral codes, and it's big to do lists. So you do a list of bad and a list of good. So when Paul writes these lists, this is something that's kind of familiar to these people. They would be uh, aware of of moral books and moral writings that that give lists that show what what is the right and what is wrong. And so Paul is going to do this here, and he's going to describe, here's the kinds of things that naturally come up. He's not suggesting that everyone, every person does every one of these, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about each one individually, but we just want to get a sense of what Paul is, is stating here. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and discord, jealousy, fits of rage and selfish ambition, dissensions and factions and envy and drunkenness and orgies and the like. Orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. All those things are doing what you want. I want what he has. Well, go take it. Uh, I want what she has, so I go take it. Or, or I want to be mean to that person, so you go do it. That, 
that's the list. That's the type of thing that at the base level, that's where we end up. That, that we end up so focused on ourselves that we uh, are doing the opposite of love to others, right? In order to do any of these things, sexual immorality, that, that is hating someone else in order to accomplish that. Uh, uh, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft all have, if you will, victims, others. All are signs of, if you allow me to say it this way, unloving acts. These are all unloving things that are part of our fleshly desire. And so Paul is creating this huge contrast. 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Notice the contrast here number, in verse 19, the acts of the flesh. Here's things that uh, uh, your flesh wants to do. And then we get the long list. But here it's the fruit of the Spirit. And so you start to picture fruit. And of course, fruit is something that grows and blossoms and goes from unripe to with the right timing, the sun and water and so on, to a, to a ripened uh, fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit, which is the result of the Spirit, which is the ongoing work of the Spirit, which is why he called us to walk in the Spirit. He didn't say, you should spend 15 minutes with the Spirit each day. That's not what he said, right? He said, we walk with it. And so he's describing growth and development. What happens when we're walking in the Spirit? Well, it begins to yield fruit. It begins to grow. And the fruit is love and joy and peace and forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You could probably take each one of those and kind of invert them and you'd get the other list, right? Like a lack of self-control can lead to uh, debauchery or drunkenness, right? You could say a lack of love yields to uh, hatred and discord uh, and jealousy and a lack of, you know, and so on. So you probably turn them inside out and so on and, and see that. But, but Paul is calling these people to be delivered from the bondage of trying to keep the law to keep themselves saved and yet Yet they're being delivered into the life of the Spirit, which is a life of others, a life to care for others, to be loving and uh, joyful, peaceful and patient, uh, kind, good, faithful, gentle and self-controlled. And then he goes on and says, against these things, there's, against such things there is no law. Well, of course there's no law. That's what the law was set up to do. The law was set up to love. And so if you think about, let's just use the Ten Commandments, they're most common. Why would God tell his people, should, you should have no other gods before me? Well, because, number one, to put another god, maybe Baal, before the one true God, is very unloving to God. Number two, it'll be very unsatisfying because Baal worship in, involves indulging in your passions. Uh, it involves an enslaving process to you. It involves, in hope against hope, thinking that Baal will send rain when you need it or, or fertility when, when you or your children are trying to have children and so on and so forth. And, and it leads you to a life of hopelessness. And so the law was set up to learn how to love. It's unloving to covet. It's unloving to dishonor your father and mother. 
That's the idea of the law. And so when we walk in the spirit, when the spirit is leading and guiding, and, and we, are, we are beginning to learn to exercise self-control to our passions, and we're, we're literally dying to the sin so that we can live uh, uh, in Christ, then this is what begins to form. Not merely in, in us individually, but in us as a body. The body of believers where we see the fruit of the spirit manifest. And so as a body, as the marathon classes, Stonebriar Community Church, this is what we want to see. The, the, the growth and development of love one to another, of, uh, of joy, of, of peace. And, and I don't mean peace um, and just ignore the fact that on the news we have all sorts of situations all around the world. I mean peace knowing that God is in control of all those situations. There's a difference. We're not trying to deny what's going on. We're saying in light of what's going on, our peace is that God is in control and that he remains sovereign. And so this is what begins to characterize um, uh, the, the, the growth in the life of the believer. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus, and now we get kind of chapter 2 language, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, notice we had in verse um, 16, walk by the Spirit, the ongoingness sort of. Now we have in 24, live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. In step, ongoing again. So you always have our life, our Christian life is this ongoing work on growth and development and maturity. And you have images like a tree bearing fruit and so on. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And so Paul is really pointing the Galatian church into, first of all, in the early chapters of Galatian, the absolute impossibility of self-saving. And we've said it before, if you are the problem, if you are the reason there's sinfulness in your life, then you can't also get to be the solution. You need a solution that's external. If you're the problem, then you need an external solution. I'm not your solution. I'm also a problem. And so we can't help each other. If you're sinful and I'm sinful, I can't fix your sin and you can't fix mine. And so we find our sufficiency in the Savior. And so as Paul is correcting that idea that you can't self-save, he then moves them to how they are called to live. And living is always this idea of loving. Loving one another, turning from inward focused to outward focused. How do I do that? That's done by the Spirit working in your life. And the Spirit uses the Word of God and the Spirit uses the people of God as He begins to transform us and yielding these things, these fruits love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And so that ancient message, if I can call that, seems to be a very daily message that we all need. A constant reminder of the call to trust in the Spirit to help us to be loving to others. Loving to those who are easy to love, loving to those who are not as easy to love. A call to love, and you can see the attractiveness. In the end, here's the reason. We're made in the image of God. You were not made to, and I can just say it this way, you were not made to be sexually immoral. I, uh, immoral. You weren't made to be impure. 
You weren't made for witchcraft. You weren't made for hatred. You weren't made for discord. None of your body of parts were made to be jealous. And so being jealous, being sinful is, if you will, a misuse of the body you were given because you were made in God's image. And it's always destructive to the body. All sin is always doing something that we were never made to do. And so what Paul is telling us is not that you now have the freedom to do anything you want. He's saying you are free to be exactly who you were created to be. And you and I were created to love. Father, we're so grateful for this ancient reminder, which is still true and relevant in our lives today, that we are called to walk in the spirit and we are called to put to death our own fleshly desires. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to, uh, with the power of your spirit, help us to do that, to continue to uh, allow the spirit to work in our lives, that we might manifest a, a life of love and of joy and of peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faith faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so not only for us individually, but for us corporately, as a Sunday school class, as a part of the body of Christ here at Stonebriar, Father, help us to be faithful unto that end. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.